Eight days ago, Griffius had rented a room above the tavern. Now, he was a sharp-featured man with a nebulous grey beard and was shabbily dressed in black. Finnegan, who used the room for a purpose which Trevor Annis guessed, demanded a rent which was undoubtedly excessive. And Griffius paid the stipulated sum without hesitation. He almost never went out. He dined and lunched in his room. His face was scarcely known in the bar. On the night in question, he came downstairs to make a telephone call from the office. A closed cab stopped in front of the tavern. The driver didn't move from his seat. Several patrons recalled that they were wearing a bear's mask. Two arlequins got out of the cab. They were of short stature, and no one failed to observe that they were very drunk. With a tootin' of horns, they burst into me office. They embraced Griffius, who appeared to recognize them, but responded coldly. They exchanged a few words in Yiddish. He in a low guttural voice. They and I pitched false voices, and then went up to their room. Within a quarter of an hour, the three descended very happy. Griffius, staggering, seemed, uh, seemed as drunk as the others. He walked tall and dizzy in the middle between the masked harlequins. One of the women at the bar remembered the yellow, red, and green diamonds. Twice he stumbled. Twice he was caught and held by the harlequins. Moving off toward the inner harbor, which enclosed a rectangular body of water, the three got into the cab and disappeared. From the footboard of the cab, the last of the harlequins scrawled an obscene figure and a sentence on one of the slates of the pier shed. Trevor Honest saw the sentence. It was virtually predictable. It said, The last of the letters of the name has been uttered. Afterwards, he examined the small room of Griffius Ginsburg. On the floor, there was a brusque star of blood. In the corners, traces of cigarettes of a Hungarian brand. In a cabinet, a book in Latin. The Philologus Hebreo Gracius. 739 of Leusden, with several manuscript notes. Trevoranus looked it over with indignation and had Lonrat located. The latter, without removing his hat, began to read while the inspector was interrogating the contradictory witnesses to the possible kidnapping. At four o'clock they left, out on the twisted Rue de Toulon. As they were treading on the dead serpentines of the dawn, Trevoranus said, And what if all this business tonight were just a mock rehearsal? Eric Lernrot smiled, and with all gravity read a passage which was underlined from the 33rd dissertation of the Philologus. Deus judicorum insipit ad solus occasu usque ad solus occasum die sequentis. This means the Hebrew day begins at sundown and lasts until the following sundown. Is that fact the most valuable one you've come across tonight? No. Even more valuable was a word that Ginsburg used. The afternoon papers did not overlook the periodic disappearances. La Cruz de la Espada contrasted them with the admirable discipline and order of the last hermetical congress. Ernst Palast and El Martyr criticized the intolerable delays in this clandestine and frugal program which has taken three months to murder three Jews. The Yiddish Zeitung rejected the horrible hypothesis of an anti-Semitic plot even though many penetrating intellects admit no other solution to the triple mystery. The most illustrious gunman of the South, Dandy Red Scarlatch, swore that in his district similar crimes could never occur, and he accused Inspector Franz Trevoranus of culpable negligence. On the night of March 1st, the inspector received an impressive-looking sealed envelope. He opened it. The envelope contained a letter signed Baruch Spinoza and a detailed plan of the city obviously torn from a Baedeker. The latter prophesied that on the 3rd of March there would not be a fourth murder, since the paint shop in the West, the tavern on the Rue de Toulon, 
and the Hotel du Nord were the perfect vertices of a mystic equilateral triangle. The map demonstrated in red ink the regularity of the triangle. Trevor Honest read the more geometrical argument with resignation and sent the letter and the map to Lernrot, who unquestionably was deserving of such madness. Eric Lernrot studied them. The three locations were, in fact, equidistant. Symmetry in time, the 3rd of December, the 3rd of January, the 3rd of February. Symmetry in space as well. Suddenly, he felt as if he were on the point of solving the mystery. A set of calipers and a compass completed his quick intuition. He smiled, pronounced the word tetragrammaton of recent acquisition, and telephoned the inspector. Thank you for the equilateral triangle you sent me last night. It has enabled me to solve the problem. This Friday, the criminals will be in jail. You may rest assured. Then they're not planning a fourth murder? Precisely because they are planning a fourth murder, we can rest assured. Lernrot hung up. One hour later, he was traveling on one of the Southern Railway's trains in the direction of the abandoned villa of Triste-le-Roi. the south of the city of our story flows a blind little river of muddy water, defamed by refuse and garbage. On the far side is an industrial suburb where, under the protection of a political boss from Barcelona, gunmen thrive. Lernrot smiled at the thought that the most celebrated gunman of all, Red Scarlach, would have given a great deal to know of his clandestine visit. Azevedo had been an associate of Scarlach. Lernrot considered the remote possibility that the fourth victim might be Scarlach himself. Then he rejected the idea. He had very nearly deciphered the problem. Mere circumstances, reality, names, prison records, faces, judicial and penal proceedings, hardly interested him now. He wanted to travel a bit. He wanted to rest from three months of sedentary investigation. He reflected that the explanation of the murders was in an anonymous triangle and a dusty Greek word. The mystery appeared almost crystalline to him now. He was mortified to have dedicated a hundred days to it. The train stopped at a silent loading station. Lonrat got off. It was one of those deserted afternoons that seem like dawns. The air of the turbid, puddled plain was damp and cold. Lonrat began walking along the countryside. He saw dogs. He saw a car on a siding. He saw the horizon. He saw a silver-colored horse drinking the crapulous water of a puddle. It was growing dark when he saw the rectangular belvedere of the villa of Tristlerois, almost as tall as the black eucalypti which surrounded it. He thought that scarcely one dawning and one nightfall, an ancient splendor in the east and another in the west, separated him from the moment long desired by the seekers of the name. A rusty wrought-iron fence defined the irregular perimeter of the villa. The main gate was closed. Lernrot, without much hope of getting in, circled the area. Once again, before the insurmountable gate, he placed his hand between the bars almost mechanically and encountered the bolt. The creaking of the iron surprised him. With a laborious passivity, the whole gate swung back. Lernrot advanced along the eucalypti, treading on confused generations of rigid, broken leaves. 
viewed from anear the house of the Villa of Tristleroy, abounded in pointless symmetries and in maniacal repetitions. To one Diana in a murky niche corresponded a second Diana in another niche. One balcony was reflected in another balcony. Double stairways led to double balustrades. A two-faced Hermes projected a monstrous shadow. Lonrat circled the house as he had the villa. He examined everything. Beneath the level of the terrace, he saw a narrow Venetian blind. He pushed it. A few marble steps descended to a vault. Lonrat, who had now perceived the architect's preferences, guessed that at the opposite wall there would be another stairway. He found it, ascended, raised his hands, and opened the trap door. A brilliant light led him to a window. He opened it. A yellow, rounded moon defined two silent fountains in the melancholy garden. Lonrat explored the house. Through anterooms and galleries, he passed to duplicate patios, and time after time to the same patio. He ascended the dusty stairs to circular antechambers. He was multiplied infinitely in opposing mirrors. He grew tired of opening or half-opening windows which revealed outside the same desolate garden from various heights and various angles. Inside, only pieces of furniture wrapped in yellow dust sheets and chandeliers bound up in tarlatan. 